Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with the best co-host a <laughs> podcaster could ever ask for, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you today? Oh, Alan, I am great. You just make my heart sore. I so appreciate these introductions. And you are absolutely the best co-host and the best boss and the best writer and the best all these things. You don't have to say that, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> and, and look, I'm super excited about the interview we're going to have today. And the reason is because the person we're interviewing is kind of like us. I mean, he's not like us in the sense that he uh, co-founded and runs a $4 billion company, and you and I haven't done that yet. Uh, but Aww. he is like us in that he's a serious leadership nerd. Yeah. And he is Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box. Mm -hmm. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I definitely am a nerd on many topics, so uh, I, I guess I'm in good company. <laughs> well, welcome to the Nerd Show. I, 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 and I want to start with that. I mean, we want to talk about Box, what Box is, how it dealt with the pandemic, all of that. But if you're okay with it, I'd like to start because you, a few years ago, taught a course at Stanford University on leadership and the changing rules of leadership, which is exactly what we focus on on this podcast. And I, I wonder what your big takeaways from that experience were. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I don't know what I got myself into, but basically <laughs> a couple friends and I many years ago, seven, eight years ago, were going back and forth on this idea of the innovator's dilemma, which is sort of this foundational concept in, uh, in disruption uh, theory and how innovator's dilemma was going to apply to more typical industrial companies as digital platforms rip you know rippled through their industry and so got together with uh, an existing uh, Stanford professor and uh, and then another um, individual uh, who is uh, a, a leader at SAP who kind of studied under Clayton Christensen for, mm. for a number of years and we basically kind of just tried to design this course where we brought in fortune 500 companies as well as sort of digital disruptors and tried to figure out what was going to uh, happen to the, the industrial companies as digital platforms redefine their industry. So the classic example is if you're Ford and you're selling cars and all of a sudden Uber and Lyft show up and car rental is and on-demand transportation is the future, how do you respond to that dynamic? Yeah. 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 And if I can just interrupt you for a second, I mean, yeah. the, the at that time, the time you were starting the course, I knew a lot of people, particularly in, in your part of the world, who thought that the disruptors would win everything, right? Yep. That the legacy yep. companies would lose and the disruptors would win. And that's not yeah. the way it played out. No. Well, so that, that is actually funny. That was one of our ultimate kind of postmortems. Um, so the class went on, I think, five or six years, and, and uh, I was part of it for maybe four. Uh, and the original thesis was that digital would truly redefine every industry. I think we, we got a good check mark on that. Yep. Um, but the incumbents actually responded extremely well. And so we we had an initial set of, of theses that the incumbents wouldn't respond as effectively and the digital platforms would really keep those companies on their toes. I think that largely played out except for the fact that, and actually if you kind of fast forward to today, most of the incumbents are actually still in a very strong position and digital has enabled many of them to grow even faster or get even bigger as opposed to just ending up in a very defensive position. So, you know, a couple of the examples that, that ultimately played out, you know, think about companies like, you know, Disney, where Disney Plus 
um, has been an incredible response to uh, the direct-to-consumer media industry and, and, and play. And what one of the initial theses that we had was it would be very hard for a traditional media company to go digital because they would be competing with their traditional customers, i.e. different movie theaters uh, or the di distributors that they normally work with. But it actually turned out that they were able to sort of redefine the business model and go direct to consumer. So that was really um, yeah. exciting. Yeah. What's so You know, it's sort of in a way, uh, Clayton Christensen writing The Innovator's Dilemma may have helped save legacy companies right. because right. they all read it. They all got it. And they all right. said, holy cow, we got to do something. I, that's exactly right. And so so I think people, they saw the writing on the wall. One of the really exciting things was the Fortune 500 companies that we invited, the CEOs, were, were actually extremely excited about the class because I, I think they, you know, many of these CEOs felt like they had learned the lessons of, of watching Kodak and Blockbuster right. and, you know, Barnes and Noble and they were very, very, you know, hell bent on making sure that didn't happen to them. And so ultimately, I think we now actually have really good lessons of what do you do when you are one of these incumbents and you have a digital disruptor? How do you evolve your business model? How do you make sure that you're fundamentally sort of enabling your organization to compete more effectively? How do you become more agile so you can compete with these smaller startups? Uh, in some cases, how do you acquire some of the competition or partner with them? So there's a whole bunch of lessons around how do you have to change the way you work and operate in the digital era. And then ultimately, you know, this whole class was obviously, you know, before the pandemic. But what happened was the companies that were well prepared from a digital strategy standpoint, these companies actually grew faster during the pandemic. They were way better off serving their customers in that environment. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, value to being prepared with, you know, understanding how, how did disruption, would disruption play out and how did you have to go digital uh, to compete more effectively. Well, let me ask you a related question, if that's okay, just jumping in here. Sure. Because I think it's extraordinary, just go, looking back over your career, you started Box when you were really, really young, and you have been through a, an amazing journey. And I'm curious how you developed your own leadership style and where you were able to apply some of these lessons that you became both a professor observer and student of as you were yeah. going forward because I mean you grew you grew up out loud in the world. Yeah. I'm gonna have to modify the professor term. I think technically I was like a guest lecturer. So um, I got it. I don't want any one of these any of these resume scandals where uh, where I lose my job falsified <laughs> credentials. So um, I was definitely a guest lecturer. But uh, my journey I, is, um, I think, pretty typical of, of a sort of product-oriented founder in the tech industry. I mean, it, it, it sort of has played out largely as that, that model kind of you know, tends to work, which is, you know, I started the company with a, a few friends uh, in college. We had this original idea back in 2005 that in the future, you'd want to be able to work from anywhere, anytime, and be able to get access to all of your information from anywhere. And it turned out that was a really important idea in the enterprise market, especially. I mean, it's been important for consumers, but really the, the real money has been made in the enterprise. And so that was, you know, we, we kind of locked into the right idea at the right time as the market was moving more to the cloud and moving more to mobile and the internet was getting faster and infrastructure was getting cheaper. So that was the original idea of the company. And, and my, my focus on day one in sort of co-founding the company was on the product side. And so the, a lot of the lessons I've learned have been through the lens of product and strategy and uh, really the idea that, you know, companies live and die by uh, how effectively they're, they're serving their customers, how customer centric their organization is, how innovative their, their company is. And so I, I took a lot of those lessons to heart, you know, similar to the Innovators Dilemma conversation uh, around how companies lose their way. And so, so much of, of my job I see as making sure that we can charter a path 
in the future with the right product, with the right strategy, serving our customers as, as effectively as possible. And then uh, try and surround myself with a leadership team that can actually get the job done and deliver on, on whatever those goals and, and strategy uh, you know, ends up being. And so ultimately, my, my success as a leader, quote unquote, is really just due to the, the actual leaders that I get to work with and then their ability to go build teams and build product and serve customers. And I see my job as trying to do my best to coordinate that and, and make sure that the team is aligned and that we're pointed in, in an effective direction and learn from the market and, and you know, what's happening around us to ensure that we're on the right path. So, so that, that's kind of the, at the highest level what, what I see my job as, as being. And then you know, hopefully enabling uh, leaders within the organization to be able to execute and get unblocked and deliver on their goals. So very foundationally, what is Box and how has all of the changes in the world moving to hybrid and remote work impacted you? Yeah. So when we started the company in the original sort of business plan that we wrote and, and like business plan itself is a pretty antiquated concept, but we actually literally wrote a document that was our business plan. We like got a template online of like, how do you write a business plan? <laughs> so we, we, we had all of we had the, we had the SWOT analysis. We had the, you know, the, the market size. I think we, we probably sized the market at like a few hundred million dollars or something. I mean, all, all the analysis is very amateur, but, um, but in the original idea, we called out that in the future, you'd want to be able to work from anywhere and be able to get access to your data from anywhere. And this was back in 2005. And the big trends that we were seeing were, if you you know kind of go back to that, that era, we had Blackberries, we were getting on cable modems, Firefox had just emerged. And so, so the internet was getting a little bit more uh, rich and interactive because you could build better applications. And our theory was that in the future, why would you be lugging around, you know, external hard drives and USB thumb drives? You'd want to be able to get access to your data from anywhere. And for basically 13, 14 years, we had to pitch everybody that we could run into on the idea of cloud computing, digital transformation, being able to work from anywhere, that this would really be what the future looked like. And then the pandemic hits and all of a sudden overnight, what was, uh, you know, maybe a a nice to have or a strategic advantage for a customer or an enterprise instantly became a necessity. And so the companies that did the best during the pandemic, especially at the start of the pandemic, were those that had already built the foundation of you know, working in the cloud and working in, in a digital first way and having a supply chain that was you know, relatively digitized and having consumer and, and employee experiences that were digital first. Those companies did the best. They responded well to the pandemic. And then you know, those that, that were still running on paper or had legacy processes or were in, you know, legacy data center, you know, systems, they responded less well, maybe moved less quickly. And then ultimately, I think things have largely converged now where, where everybody recognizes they have to be in the cloud and, and be able to go digital. And so our, our business is we are in the business of helping enterprises be able to work in this modern way where you're much more agile, you're much more collaborative, you can work from anywhere uh, and data is at the center of everything we do. Well, so so what is this modern way? <laughs> I feel like we're still <laughs> yeah. trying to figure it out, right? We know what it was like before the pandemic. We know what we did during the pandemic. And now everybody's throwing around this word hybrid, but everyone has a different definition of what it means. What is Box's definition of what hybrid means? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, the, by definition, the word hybrid probably gets you into territory where anybody can define it however they want. But for us, I mean, we, we see... There's probably, you know, no two companies that are going to be exactly the same, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, how many days in, in the office do you have to be? How many days can you be remote? Where are you going to be hiring from? But what we know for a fact is that everything is going to have to be ultimately mediated by digital platforms. Whether you're working in the office or remote, 
all of the work that you're doing eventually is going to be digitized. And in some cases, it's going to start digital from the first second that the work is, is happening. And this is truly the only way that teams are going to be able to work in this distributed fashion. And so we really have to think about how does our work get digitized? Um, and that's going to produce of just fundamentally new ways of working, new ways of collaborating. Um, the way that teams get aligned and stay aligned is going to be fundamentally different. The way that you ideate, the way that you, you know, design new projects, um, yep. the idea of like hopping onto a whiteboard and drawing out the, the whole strategy, those days are largely over mm -hmm. because you're going to be doing that work inside of a digital interface at the very start of that process. And more and more of that work is going to ultimately be digitized from the, the, the very sort of start of the work. Yeah, but I'm curious. I mean, so you're you're going to enable people to do this, do whatever mix of in office, out of office they want to do. But I'm curious how you and how Box is dealing with this. I get a sense looking at your background there that you're not at home right now. That's a very office looking chair and kind of an office looking painting behind you. Have I, I got I've that tried, right? I've tried to set my my personal office as much up like a a regular office. So uh, yeah, so I'm I'm at home at the moment. But oh, that's awesome. Yeah, okay, I called yeah, it wrong. But, I called it no, wrong. no, no. But but I, I but like it's almost indistinguishable in, in the environment that I'm working from. But so, what's your policy for box employees? So there's no policy. We have I don't even know the number. Maybe a dozen offices globally. Uh, if you live near an office, you know, generally we, we see you a, a couple or a few days a week. But ultimately, um, you know, we, we have a kind of flexible first, digital first oriented way of working. And again, it, it's, it's sort of the perfect definition of hybrid. We haven't forced, you know, anybody to come in at, at a particular rate, but we also have not done away with the idea of offices. I think that, that people mm. getting together in person is still an important part of a culture for a variety of reasons of just maintaining relationships the social dynamic of an organization, but we think you can be just as productive on, you know, effectively any device and in any location. And so we're not doing it for productivity reasons. We're doing it because to hopefully scale a global culture, people getting together as just a, a human thing is, is really important. So this has been a tough time for command and control kind of leaders who really want to be able to walk into a room and see a bunch of people sweating it out in cubicles in front of them. What are the characteristics of leaders who are going to be successful building the kind of culture that can thrive in this this radically changed new world? It's uh, it's a very, very different world, you know, from a leadership standpoint. And even if you weren't a kind of quote unquote command and control in, in, the, in the way that you just described it, there was a lot of effectively kind of qualitative anecdotal information you could get just by walking around the office and right. what are people working on and what are people blocked by? And that, that, that goes away. That sort of casual sort of sidebar conversation just doesn't really, you know, do as well in the digital space. So you have to be much more intentional around around how you're communicating, how you're aligning, how you're organizing, but it can come with significant advantages when you actually do exploit the power of digital. So what we've seen is you, you come down a little bit on the axis of the in-person management techniques that, that in Andy Grove you know, wrote <laughs> about and, and came up with 30 or 40 years ago. And what you do is if you really can exploit and design your organization to get the benefits of digital, all of a sudden you have some superpowers. So one great example, is the ability to convene cross-functional people across an organization that would have just been impractical or impossible before. So instantly, we can actually compress the time that it takes to deliver and disseminate information or get people aligned. Another superpower is that you get to involve people that previously maybe wouldn't have been able to participate in a conversation because, again, either literally it was just impractical, like they weren't in the building where the discussion was happening, or you know, if you have a 10-person room and you have a really serious topic, 
then you're probably going to prioritize the more senior people on that particular topic. And there's not going to be a lot of room for other ideas or individuals to participate. Well, now, again, you could have a very serious topic and it could have five times the amount of people that would have normally fit in a room. And you might have somebody who is, quote unquote, more up and coming or junior that is then contributing, either presenting or coming up with ideas that wouldn't have been possible for. So the exposure expands massively and the possible involvement of and participation across the organization expands as well. So, really? so that's a couple of the superpowers that you get for free by going digital and being able to work in this digital first way. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, this new wave of business technology, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, the ability to make intelligence out of data is creating huge opportunities for companies. But a lot of the CEOs I talk to feel daunted by it. It's like, where do they get the imagination? to rethink their entire corporation. How do they deal with that? The opportunities are immense, particularly when you look at not just any one of these technologies individually, but the convergence of all of them collectively, creating the opportunity to truly transform business models. And I know it can seem daunting, but the reality is taking a first step in actually produces huge benefit because what we're finding is that many of the cutting edge applications are not coming out of the corporate headquarters. They're coming out of putting the technology in the hands of our people on the front lines, they find new and innovative uses. We then funnel them back up and leverage them across the entire client base. Yeah, it really gets to the importance of a culture of innovation at the company. It is essential that our people feel empowered to take the latest and greatest and to find new and innovative ways to use it for productive purposes. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Aaron, you're you're my sense is you're kind of a go against the grain guy. <laughs> Actually, depends on the grain, frankly. Okay. So. Well, I, I say that because you created this enterprise company at a time when all the cool kids in Silicon Valley thought right. enterprise was not cool, <laughs> and yet I think Steve Jobs most yeah. most famously said, "I don't give an f dot 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 about the enterprise," and you know everything was focused on consumer, and and then enterprise did yeah. become cool. Uh, so you were you were ahead of it. These days, the cool kids are talking about Web3. Yeah. And you've been pouring some oh, cold yeah. water on that. Can you tell us why? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, it's just great timing for, uh, Alan, your, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the magazine cover that you have in, in yes. the background. Sa uh, Sam, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, so, for those of you who can't see it, is the cover of Fortune magazine. I'm gonna, oh, boy. Oh, wow. We've got it on all the video screens now. So, um, so with, uh, with certainly all respect to uh, SBF, I have a slightly different view of, uh, of, of Web3 uh, than maybe is, uh, is shared by some of the more crypto uh, bulls. I, first of all, I'm, I'm insanely excited about almost all innovation happening on the internet uh, today. You know, when you think about AI or cloud computing or, you know, where semi semiconductors and chips are going, uh, there is so much innovation that is, is happening right now. So huge optimists on the future of technology. In Web3 specifically, my issue has been more that I haven't been able to square the sort of idealism of Web3 and maybe the philosophy of Web3 with the actual technical and economic um, implementation of how to get there. Uh, and there's a lot of esoteric reasons why, why, why I feel that way and so happy to spend as much or a little time on it. But, but I think the idealism of, of you know, 
being able to own digital assets is, is super compelling and interesting. The idealism of, of you know, more open systems is, is very interesting. But then to me, that often runs in the face of, of you know, kind of the core economic foundation of Web3 being a tokenized internet um, to me doesn't actually align with much of that vision where you'd have to actually you know, pay to do more transactions. Uh, you have very you know, dynamic pricing schemes based on people buying and selling um, uh, the, uh, the underlying um, uh, token or currency. And so you know, causing a lot of, of variability in these networks that, that to me, I don't, I don't see as beneficial to consumers. And even just the underlying sort of database itself as a blockchain is not always well suited for the the, the kind of so, ideas yeah. uh, of the types of applications. So all hype, people would want half to hype. I mean, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, hybrid hype. Hybrid hype. <laughs> uh, yeah, hybrid hype. I like that a lot. Um, I, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna be very boring because um, uh, I, I have to be super nuanced. But I would say that the way that Web three is described as being possible to me doesn't align with the technology and economic underpinnings that I've seen. And so, so in that case, I would say zero in terms of, of possibility. If it changes or if it evolves, then, then maybe it's possible. But, but I have not seen how Web3 gets created with the technology today that we are, are looking at and, and talking about or the underlying business models and value propositions. I, and, and I think if you just ask most consumers... Uh, most just regular people that don't pay attention to any of this stuff that we talk about. And you just say, uh, hey, if any given day, would you want to pay 30 cents or $10 or $100 to participate in some network based on the buying and selling and marketplace dynamics of, of what people are doing? Most people don't want to do that. They don't want to financialize all of their life. You know, when they go to a concert, they want to spend 20 bucks for the ticket and they don't want to have to worry about marketplace dynamics for just everything that's happening. Um, when they join a, a social network, they don't want to have to pay every time they, they post a message. And so most of the things that, that Web3 is sort of, you know, theoretically attacking are actually things that most consumers probably don't have problems with. Um, you know, all the free services we get online that are ad supported, those are probably not things that consumers want to have go away. And so I, I just haven't really seen a lot of the core value proposition make sense, you know, from a consumer standpoint. Back to the uh, industrialist dilemma, Ellen and I are in a business that got really yeah. pummeled by the move to digital because there was no way to extract, no easy way to extract value for digital content. I mean, the notion of having better ways to extract value from digital content is a compelling idea to those of us who've lived through the last 20 years of media. Yeah, totally. And then I, I, the only challenge is like notions don't really get you very far. So the, uh, <laughs> so you know, ultimately what, what gets you far is, is actual consumer use cases where people want to participate in a, in a sustainable way. And so I think maybe the word, the operative word to me is sustainable. A lot of times when you have uh, dynamics where a price of an asset can shoot up for no you know, particularly obvious reason, yeah. then unfortunately that's usually unsustainable. And so the, the asset eventually has to come back down because, because there won't be a future believer of that asset right. once you know, that hype you know, reduces. And so the challenge, even with things like NFTs, is, is that there's, there's not an obvious sort of underlying value for any given NFT other than our own belief that in the future, somebody will pay more for it. And so if, if that starts to evaporate, then you know, very quickly you have a corresponding sort of reduction in value. And so those are fundamentally unsustainable you know, value propositions or unsustainable business models. And so that's why I think it's very hard to build a sustainable platform with many of the economic underpinnings that currently Web3 is sort of you know, creating. 
There's a greater fool theory joke in here somewhere. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to come up with it in time though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like, sounds, you know, very boring to talk about, but unfortunately like at a, at an economic principle level, that is what it is. It is somebody buying a, an asset for only belief that they can sell it to somebody else in the future. And that is, that is just not a very sustainable ongoing long-term business model for any asset to have. Eventually yeah. uh, you either are paying for a service or or getting cash flow, and and so these are things that that, that have to be at the root of any any technical you know new platform. I want to talk about regulation too, because you you took a public stance yeah. criticizing the FTC for suing Meta. You went on Twitter, <laughs> and you said if the government blocks big tech companies from buying small startups in nascent markets, all that will happen is that yeah. there will be fewer startups over time because investors can't underwrite the risk. It's bad for innovation and ironically good for the big tech companies. Tell us about why you think that, but also why was it important for you to be public about that? I, 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 first of all, I don't think it was important for me to be public. My Twitter, I just see as, uh, you know, I, sometimes I just need to get some thoughts out onto the internet. So I, I don't think it was, uh, you know, particularly strategic or, or whatnot. But what I would say is that, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at all of the, at least public commentary from the FTC to, to Meta and back and forth. And the FTC's argument was, you know, Meta should go and create these games themselves and they shouldn't acquire, you know, companies to, to do that. Uh, and, and to me, you know, you, what you're doing is, um, as FTC, is now somewhat playing God in the market where, you know, let's say this startup, I don't know it very well, but, but let's say this startup is struggling or, or maybe not, you know, able to, to be a viable independent company for whatever reason, because VR is a very nascent market. There's not a lot of big companies that are paying for VR products right now, Meta being probably the primary one uh, who's willing to shell out large amounts of money. For these companies and so ftc is basically saying well we're sorry startup you're not going to be able to get acquired and so they're really putting their hand on the scale of of mm. the, the market where they're they're completely altering the market dynamics and i think you know there is a time and a place for that where you've got you know truly monopolistic behavior that is extremely bad yeah. for consumers but you know in a space like vr where maybe there's tens of millions of users of yeah. vr globally and, and we don't even really know the use cases yet. And Meta is trying their best to try and figure out, can we, can we make something out of this? It just, it feels like it was more of a political move as opposed to one that yeah. really has anything to do with about consumer protection. And the problem is from the cycle of innovation is what you want are lots of startups that get backed by, you know, in many cases, venture capital. And for those venture capitalists to ultimately want to invest in startups, they have to know that there's multiple paths to getting a return. And so if you have the FTC or the government blocking pretty de minimis in terms of impact acquisitions, it really reshapes the landscape because why would you then invest in a, in a VR startup when Facebook is or Meta is the only likely acquirer right now and they can't even acquire you? That just puts you in a really bad position from an, an innovation standpoint. Yeah, totally right. I, I'm not a big fan of Meta, but I think this is a little bit crazy. And assuming that, that Meta fights it, I can't believe that the FTC position would hold up in court, particularly given the fairly conservative makeup of our court system these days. But we'll find that out years and years from now. I guess the question is whether they cave to the regulator in advance. Hey, Aaron, you've proven me right. You are a leadership nerd and, <laughs> and the perfect guest for Leadership Next. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Hey, thanks, Alan. Alan, appreciate it. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producer, Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 